Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have a very special guest, Jim Willis. He is the author of Hidden History, Ancient Aliens and Suppressed Origins of Civilization, and also Quantum Akashic Fields, Guide to Out-of-Body Experience for for the Astral Traveler. And I believe he's written 10 other books added to that. (laughs) Thank you for being on my show. Oh, thanks, Gary. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Uh, So, um, you know, like, actually, um, you were a Protestant minister for 40 years. Is that how this started? Well, uh, it's hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) I was... uh, I was a Protestant minister, uh, like like you say, for 40 years. And uh, when I went into ministry back in the early 70s, I was under the impression, as most of us were, most of us young people going to seminary, we we had this idea that life was going to be this perpetual spiritual quest. You know, we were going to be searching for our holy grail, and we'd be surrounded by a community of like-minded individuals and uh, we went off to seminary expecting this uh, great, illuminating um, spiritual journey. And, uh, of course, it just doesn't work out that way. When you go to your first, uh, when you go to your first church, you know, you're a pastor of a church, and, and you understand that, like everything else, it's, it's a job. You have to be concerned about uh, the next Sunday, you have to be concerned about the next committee meeting or the next counseling session or uh, the next deadline. And pretty soon, before you know it, man, 40 years has come and gone. And uh, you realize that you've been talking about uh, God. You've been talking about spirit. And you haven't been really experiencing it Uh you know, other people talk about going to church or having this great uh, illuminating spiritual awakening at a church. And uh, when you're leading the church service, you don't do that because your job is to make sure things get done at the right time and at the right order and in the right volume and all that kind of thing. And so <laughs> you're you're not really entering into it. You're leading it. And that kind of just sums it up. You know, at 40 years later, I realized I had been talking about God all my life, and I hadn't been really having the experience that I was after. So when it came time to retire, uh, my wife and I decided we had an agenda. We were going to go to the woods. Uh, we moved up to South Carolina, uh, bought a little piece of property that was just pure woods. As a matter of fact, we had to build the road back to it, and I had to build the house. I was part-time carpenter while I was in ministry as well. So I built the house, and uh, we decided to spend one year, we were going to spend one year living out in the woods, watching the leaves change uh, uh, color, and we were going to, for lack of a better term, try to experience uh, God, but I didn't want. So I was thinking of a I, I, <laughs> But by then, you know, I come to the point where I wasn't even really comfortable using the word God anymore because I know what I mean when I say God, but right. it's a word that's got so much baggage on it. So 
I started thinking about uh, other words like source or getting back to the spirit, you know, and um, we, we came out here for one year and, and now it's been almost 11. <laughs> we're still, we're still here. Uh, started writing some books and I came out here with, with a, I even had a scripture verse in my mind. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a, a wonderful story where Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, uh, have this falling out. And uh, Jacob is forced to, to flee for his life because he defrauded uh, his brother Esau out of his uh, birthright. And so he fled for his life. Uh, and if the story is historically accurate, he probably went up uh, in the area right now that is Anatolia, somewhere near where Gobekli Tepe was discovered in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came back down. Uh, years and years later, and he was about to be reconciled with his brother Esau, and he was worried about it. He didn't know how the meeting was going to go. So all night long, he was up doing like most of us do, you know, you pacing, pacing back and forth. And he meets this, uh, well, he said he meets a man. Uh, it was an entity of some kind, apparently, according to the story. And he wrestled with him all night. And as the dawn broke in the morning, the sun was coming up, uh, he found himself realizing that he was wrestling with God. And so he said the words, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that was the verse that was on my mind. When I came out here to the woods, I said, okay, God, here we go, 24-7, just just." you and me. <laughs> I, I want to experience the Holy. I want an experience like, oh, the people in Stonehenge had that was so powerful that they would move um, megaton boulders halfway across England. You know, that that was the kind of experience I wanted, something real. And um, lo and behold, after being a Christian minister for 40 years, my prayer was answered, but not at all within the structure of Christianity. I discovered it was, um, my prayer was answered much more in terms of, uh, well, what might be considered today um, perhaps pagan. Um, we, we had the experience we were looking for, but that whole idea of I will not let you go until you bless me was in my mind. Um, I, <laughs> there, there is a, uh, a sequel to this story. If we have uh-huh. time, I got to tell you oh, about it. We got it. a lot of time. Okay, a couple of years ago, um, I was asked to go to Cornwall over in the UK and give a talk about, uh, to a group over there, give a talk about uh, the roots of world religions. And so I went over, had a wonderful time, did some dowsing around some of the standing stones out there in the UK and uh, spent a couple of days with the person who was the head of the British Dowsers Association and, and uh, learned a lot. We did, did a lot of dowsing and everything else. And after it was all over and I'd given my talk, before I could come home from England, I had to go up to the little town of Fenny Compton, which is up northwest of London, because my ancestors used to preach there, and I'm talking like two, three hundred years ago. Wow. And they were clergy in the, in, the, um, uh, in, in the Church of England. And I wanted to see the church. The church where they preach is still standing, still being used. And so I went up there, met the town historian, and she let me in. And I was able to see the little plaque on the wall that said, uh, Reverend Willis, you know, served here at such and such a time. And I stood up in the pulpit where my ancestor used to stand two or three hundred years ago. And as I looked around from his view in the pulpit, I had a perfect view of a stained glass window 
that was still there when he was there. It was had been installed already when he was there. And this stained glass window was really only clearly seen from the pulpit. But lo and behold, it was a stained glass window depicting the image of Jacob wrestling with God, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. <laughs> Somehow, this guy's spiritual genes were passed down from generation to generation, and I must have inherited them because I was staring at a stained glass window that my ancestors saw that was the very same verse that I had in my mind when I came up here to the woods. I will not let you go until you bless me. Do, do you think that could be like the result? I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about past life experience, but do you think that maybe it could have something like, like that? Maybe you or do him? You, you know, I, I've told this story before. That's the first time I ever thought about it. Uh, I've, I've often thought about it just in terms of serendipity or coincidence. It never occurred to me that it might be a, had been a past life experience. Wow, that's uh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that, Gary. I never thought of it. I'll have to. I'll have to. I'll have to work, look into this. I really will. Yeah, like, like I don't know how you feel about past life experiences. Oh but, yeah, no, I'm. I, know, I, I'm. I'm sort of a believer in it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. I really am. Uh, uh, I matter of fact, um, I'm such a believer that um, in my own out-of-body experiences that I've had since I've been here, uh, I've received the clear and certain knowledge that uh, this is my last, my last go-round in the material world. And when I leave this body, I'll be moving on to a different, um, a different frame, a different plane, a different uh, reason for existence. I'm really excited about it, but uh, I just can't believe that as many years as I thought about this, it never occurred to me that uh, that past ancestor of mine could have been me. Wow, you you <laughs> you just uh, you made my whole day. Thank you, I appreciate you're it. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're moving on to another plane, man, I'm going to miss you in the next life. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, I'll be around. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, I, th I think, too, that's overlooked, you know, is this is just my opinion, actually. But back in the old Jewish tradition of Kabbalah, which, mm -hmm. you know, part of the Bible, I think, you know, or yeah, at yeah. least part of the tradition. Yes. They, they, they believed in reincarnation in past lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you find it in uh, in a lot of different traditions. Uh, and uh, I'm. It to me it makes it makes perfect sense. I have a a kind of a um, well, it's a theory. I'll never be able to prove it. But of course, when you spend a lot of time alone in the woods, you find yourself asking the big questions: uh, Who am I? And what is my purpose for living? Why am I here? We all ask those questions. Yeah. And I've developed a a theory that. Uh, when I, I mentioned earlier that I feel more comfortable with the word source uh, than I do with God sometimes, I've developed a theory that the source is where we all come from. It's a place of, of perfect unity. It's a place of perfect oneness. But there's something that is missing from the source. You would think that it would be everything possible that they're in the source, but there is something that's missing in a place of perfect unity, and that is individuality. Um, 
you, you can't experience individuality within a field of oneness or we'll call it a place of oneness. Yes. And so I think every single one of us has made a, a what I think is a very courageous decision to, to leave the source and enter into what I call in, in my book, uh, the quantum Akashic field, which is a field, uh, Irvin Laszlo gave it that name. It's a field of all possibilities, all probabilities. And from there, we make a journey. Once we discover the possibilities of individuality, we make a journey. We are there, energy, so to speak. You might, for lack of a better term, we make a, a journey. The energy that is now individual makes a journey through the newly discovered Higgs field and takes on mass. And we come here and take on mass. We are born into this life. And the reason we are here is to experience the individuality. Now, that's a good thing, but it's also, of course, a bad thing because we, in, in here in this place where we live, this perception realm where we live, uh, if we're going to experience individuality, we have to ex experience duality. And that means that there's good, but that means that there's also bad. We have to experience it all. And then when this lifetime is over, and I just have no personal doubt about this at all, when this lifetime is over, the essential essence, who we are, returns to that source. And there in the source, we uh, share, so to speak, or download the uh, individual experiences that we have. And here is where it ties in, I think, with past life, because I think we keep doing it again and again and again until we have experienced literally everything we are supposed to experience. And in that sense, the source is informed by our individuality. Now, if you want to go back to using the word God instead of the source again, to put it bluntly, here is God experiencing individuality and God itself or himself or herself evolving because of our experience um, in, in my tradition of Christianity, we say, you know, God created all that is. But in that sense, we are in the process of creating God, when you want to look at it that way. Uh, we are in the process of evolving. And I think life after life after life, we refer to them now as past lives. And I don't know whether it all happens at once, whether we have the experience of living in different times, or whether we actually do live in different times, because I don't I don't know exactly what the nature of time really is, but whatever it is, um, we are doing something that is tremendously courageous, and that is taking on this experience, life after life, and then going back to the source and evolving the source. I think it's a tremendous reason to get up in the morning when I when I remember it right and think about it in that sense. What a what a wonderful purpose for human life. Yes, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm reading this book called um, Samadhi. And the, the, the theory behind this book is that the entire universe is just one particle. And because yes. that one particle exists, it has to take on every imaginable, conceivable form that it can. Yes. And yeah. through that process, it learns about itself. Yes. And then everything eventually returns back with that knowledge. And it, yeah. after that, I don't know. I have no idea what happens because it's such a uh -huh. mind-blowing idea. 
Oh, absolutely. But, um, and, and, and we don't, we don't feel it all the time because uh, if we knew what was going on uh, intellectually, we would be, um, it, it would kind of ruin the whole point of the whole thing. Uh, the point of experience is to experience something that hasn't happened before. And if we know exactly what's going to happen, and if we understand the whole thing while we're going through it, it won't work. So we have to, in a sense, go beyond our feelings. We feel individual. We feel as though we're cut off. We feel as though we're separate. We feel happy and we feel sad and we feel all those things. And we say, oh, I wish I could rise above it and just know that it's all happening for a purpose. But if we actually felt all the time or knew all the time that it was happening for a purpose, it would defeat the purpose of having the experience in the first place. So uh, I, find a great, I find a great comfort in it. I really do. I do too. One, I, I find comfort that, um, you know, even if I don't get it this time, maybe I'll get it next time, you know? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and since everything is just part of one whole, Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't matter. I, I don't. I feel like w- with that kind of knowledge, I don't have to go through life and take it so seriously. That's you know. It, you know I, I, I can win. I, I can lose everything. None of it in the end will actually make a difference. You know, because yeah. it's, it's the experience and not success or achievement. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 really I, I think extremely important. Uh, here's here's where the, the the Buddha was so far ahead of the rest of us. Uh, most of our religions teach us to identify with the good, and then to reject the bad. Um, and we have this picture of an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and all that kind of thing. Uh, the Buddha didn't see it that way. Uh, the Buddha saw that good and bad and everything that happens in this life are the poles of a duality. And his whole uh, insight was to find what he called the middle way between those two poles of duality to the place that embraces them both. Um, he was so far ahead of his time when he started talking like that. But it, it does lead us to a, a, a great insight in our time because this kind of uh, Akashic field that we're talking about, the field of all possibilities and all probabilities, and even in quantum physics right now, they will say uh, the field where nothing happens unless there is an observer. Yes. <laughs> um, that, that very field... Uh, has been discovered within the last 70, 80 years by quantum physicists. And yet that's the field that they have discovered through their mathematics that the ancient mystics and the ancient gurus have been traveling to in, uh, in uh, out-of-body travel. Uh, they have been traveling there for thousands of years. So we live in the generation where our scientists has, have caught up with our mystics and the two parallel roads of science and metaphysics or mysticism uh, or the supernatural, the two parallel roads that have been going right in the same direction toward the same end have now merged onto one highway. And that to me says that we are living in an exciting time. Anything is possible uh, if these two roads can come together like that. So I, I'm, 
I'm very enthusiastic uh, when I allow myself to be. I'm very enthusiastic about the times that we're living in. And I find that very practical. So when people say, oh, it's all this pie in the sky stuff you're dealing with, uh, what about the reality of what we're going through? Well, the reality of what we're going through between pandemics and between economic collapse and between um, political collapse and all of that stuff that has us all going to the television to hear the bad news every night. Right. All of that stuff um, is, uh, there is uh, an antidote for it. And the antidote, I think, is in exactly what we're talking about. Um, if people say, how do I feel better in this terrible world? Understand what happens is happening for a reason and understand what that reason is. And that makes all this stuff, I think, very practical. I do too. I interviewed somebody a couple weeks ago. His name was um, Dr. Richard Allen Miller. And he described life. <laughs> I, I love his description. He goes, man, you don't have to worry about life. It's just a creepy dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I couldn't agree with him more. You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We, we've all had that, that, that thing of waking up for, from a dream and it stays with us because it seems so real, you know, and we have to get up and shake our heads and walk around and turn on the light and realize that, wow, that, I, you know, wherever I was, this, this is the reality. I think that's exactly the, the feeling we're going to have when this life is over. And uh, when we wake up on, and on the other side, it's going to be like waking up from a bad dream and even our language betrays it you know the old old song the way yeah. it gets row 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 your boat gently down the stream yes. barely barely <laughs> life is but a dream uh, and uh it's uh, th there's even uh, from my own again from my own background in christianity where i had to listen so often like so many christians do about is there a hell you know does hell really exist and my, my, uh, my answer is always the same. I ask people, well, what is hell? And eventually they get down to say, hell is separation from God. And then I will say to them, in this life, are you separated from God? And you say, well, I feel like I'm separated from God. And I say, well, there it is. You're in hell right now. <laughs> it's, it's real. And we're living it because hell is separation from the source. And so th that also is, we don't have to worry. Uh, about dying and coming out on the other side because uh, we've already been here. And when we return, we wake up from that dream. And I think our first thought is going to be, ah, I knew it all along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that is in, in, and for me, that, I definitely find that really comforting. Yeah. Too. Um, it, yeah it, it, uh, it takes away a lot of the fear that people are so wrapped up in. Yeah. 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 Fear. Fear is, is every, and, and I, we return to the end of the Buddha and his, his famous Four Noble Truths. And, uh, you know, the first one is that all life is suffering. And by that, he didn't mean that we have to suffer all the time and everything else. He just said that even in the best of times, there is the knowledge that these times won't last forever. So that's suffering. And then he went on to the second Noble Truth, that that suffering is caused by desire. Um, and even the desire that we want to, we're, we're we want to live because we're so afraid of death and that fear that gets around us. So we desire to be released from fear. And his third great noble truth is you can end that suffering 
by ending the fear or ending the desiring. Stop wanting only the good. Just start accepting who you are. And uh, and even and then in his fourth noble truth, of course, he gave the eightfold path to follow yes. that, that tells us how to live. But um, wow, what a what a beautiful thing that fear is. And, and it's there again too. That. That's in the big religions, too. The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament, he said that fear is the greatest enemy, and the, that fear of death. And he said that last enemy to be destroyed is death. And if we don't fear that, then there's no problem. You know, as a, as, as a minister for that many years, I, I was at the bedside of literally hundreds of, of people who, who died and came back afterwards. And I was mm -hmm. able to interview them or read about them. They had near-death experiences. You know, I have yet to talk to one person who wanted to come back. They all get to the other side and all they talk about is beauty and light and understanding and compassion and love. And I have yet to find one person who wanted to come back. They knew they needed to and they understood the there was a there was a purpose for it, but they didn't want to come back. My own um, mentor, who I'd never met, I've met his wife, but I never met him, and that was Hamish Miller, who was the granddaddy of all uh, British dowsers, um, who was mentor to so many of us who douse. Uh, I've talked to, uh, had tea one time with his wife, Bob Miller, a wonderful, wonderful woman who lives in Cornwall. And uh, you know, I was talking to her and she was telling me about how after he had his, uh, well, now famous for those who follow him, uh, had his uh, near-death experience, how he died and came back. And he said, and once you, know, once you know where you're going, once you see where you're going, he said, there's no more fear anymore. Because what can they do to you? Anything that happens to you is just going to make that closer, that uh, reality closer. And uh, boy, that's a wonderful way to live, isn't it? It is. You know, I had an experience about a year ago where I had um, an epileptic seizure. And it lasted a long time. It was about 20 minutes. But I remember during that seizure, um, when I lost consciousness, yes. I was like in a vortex of color and sound. And I remember just sort of like being on like, huh, oh, yeah. this is yeah. kind of cool. Like, you know, like, cause I'm not in my own consciousness anymore. Yeah. Right? My uh, brain, my brain is shut off, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. then all of a sudden I hear someone yelling in the background, come back to me, come back to me. It was my yeah. wife yelling at me. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and I woke up and there she is yelling at me. And like, it seemed like a second, but I was out for like, you know, 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I've, I never had epileptic seizures at all in my life until I started having out-of-body experiences. Mm -hmm. And the epilepsy and the out-of-body experiences were hand in hand. And I was faced with the idea of um, what do I do about epilepsy and I began to study it myself and I discovered that ever since the time of Aristotle epilepsy has been called a spiritual disease because so many people who had epileptic seizures um, saw other entities and heard voices and had visions like you did and like I have when I've had some epileptic seizures and uh, I discovered that when people do brain uh, imagery MRI scans the very same portion of the brain 
that uh, lights up during an epileptic seizure, that very same portion also lights up when a person is having an out-of-body experience. So I had to uh, make a big decision. Uh, did I want to take med medication and close the door of my brain to the bad guy of epilepsy? Because if I do that, I might be closing the door to the good guy of out-of-body uh -huh. experiences. And uh, it was a big decision. And I, I decided I would just rather put up with the epilepsy. So it went on for, oh, a period of probably eight or nine years. And uh, now I have to say, now that I'm more uh, fluid and frequent with my out-of-body experiences, my epilepsy has all but disappeared. Uh, I haven't had a seizure in, in years now. And um, I'm, I'm sure they're connected. So I, I don't doubt for one bit that your epileptic seizure was uh, really occurred at the same time you were having an out-of-body experience and you saw a vision of the real reality. Yeah, I, I swear I did. And, and another funny thing about that story is um, about a week later, I received a book in the mail from Oxford University um, called Time Paradoxes. It's not like a book you could buy on Amazon. And the uh -huh. date on a receipt, was six months in the future. <laughs> wow. So weird. I don't know if the two events were connected, but. Wow. You know. Wow. Oh, isn't, isn't life fun when we open our eyes and really look at what's going on? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's know, certainly way more going on than what we're perceiving. Oh, you know, we, we have a, a, a strange opinion, I think, of reality. Uh, when you come right down to it, uh, we, we live inside a, what I like to call a five, a five fold fence really are in this life. We are surrounded by this fence that has five sides to it. And it's, we, we don't call them a fence. We call them our, 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 um, senses, right. uh, touch and taste and hearing and smell and sight. And they surround us. And then over the top of it, is the whole thing is a, a roof that we call the intellect. And anything that comes to us comes uh, through one of those gates, one of those, those fences of touch, taste, hearing, sight, and smell. Um, but when we get right down to it, we look at this, we call it, this is what we perceive, and so we call this perception reality, we, we call it reality. It, well, that is not the case at all, I don't think. The reality isn't inside the fence. The reality is on the other side of the fence. And I think really that's what out-of-body experience is. It's finding ways to get outside the fence and experience the reality that's out there. Uh, our brains filter everything through those five senses. When you had your epileptic seizure for that moment, there was that, part, or that, 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 that period of time, there was that time when your brain was firing in a way that it doesn't normally hear within this perception realm. And with that opening up, it opened you up to the reality outside the perception fence. It was really a, uh, a wonderful thing when, when you come right down to it, wasn't it? I mean, when you look back on it. It, it, was, it was cool. I'm yeah. saying that. Like, it's kind of funny. My buddy's like, no, that was not cool. I thought you were having a heart attack. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, I've, I've had those. She, I've had she those thinks experience. I'm a little. She thinks I'm a little crazy. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you, you know, anybody who's never never realized it 
they probably will think you're crazy because, you know, they've never experienced it. We only tend to believe in things that we experience. That's all. And most people uh, haven't experienced something like that. And so, yeah, they think you're crazy. And they say, well, how do you convince someone like that? And I finally decided after years of, of this whole thing that you just can't. Um, anybody who does not believe it, um, your words are not going to be um, sufficient to, right. to, to change their minds. And anybody who does believe it, your words are not going to be adequate to describe the experience because the words you use, language itself, was invented to describe things within this perception realm, within the fivefold fence. That's what words do. They describe experiences so we can share them with each other. So how do you experience something when it takes place outside the fence? There's no language out there that can describe those kinds of realities. That's why when you come back from an out-of-body experience, you really can't say, this is the way it is. All you can say is, this is the way it seemed to me. Yeah. And it becomes inadequate. Uh, I found it so difficult. When I was writing The Quantum Akashic Field, the subtitle is A Guide to Out-of-Body Experiences for the Astral Traveler. And I would take some of my out-of-body experiences and try to put them into words. I keep a journal just for that purpose. And uh, I discovered you just can't do it. The words are so inadequate. But that opens up a whole new reality, too, because when you go back into the scriptures of the great religions, when you go back into the Bible or uh, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, when you go into the Quran, and you begin to uh, read it with that kind of insight, you begin to describe, you begin to understand some people uh, like Ezekiel, for instance, right. who, who is trying to describe what certainly sounds fantastic to us. I mean, this great uh, vehicle driven by a man who had four faces and, and uh, wings and all this kind of thing and the head of a lion and an eagle and a man. And, a, and, and then you talk about Isaiah in the Old Testament, who had a vision of being taken up to the third heaven and seeing things and hearing things, and uh, being sent back with a message. Or you read about even the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 11. He said uh, he had an out-of-body experience. He said, I was taken to heaven, and I, was seen, see, I saw things there of which I cannot even speak. He said he couldn't find the words for it. So I, I think in, in a lot of cases, the, the religions that people are raised in— um, were originally, when the founders were there, they were originally trying to describe exactly the things that you and I are talking about right now. But then, of course, later came the followers, and they would take these insights and these visions and these out-of-body experiences and this deep perception of reality, and they build dogma and doctrines and rules and regulations and all the rest. Uh, oh, it's, it's a shame, but if you go back and look at it at the beginning, the experience of those who lived at the beginning, um, I think you'll find that it's very similar to what we're talking about right now. That's why I always like the, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Heart Sutra. Yes. Or uh, it's like, like no eyes, no nose, no sound, yes. no touch, you know. And, and, and I, like that's the you know them trying to explain basically what we're talking about is the yeah. the lack of all this. You can't say what it is, but they can kind of describe what it isn't. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and, and when you're there, it seems more real than this reality, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the reality right there. It's amazing. So one of the things I know about you too that we have in common is we're both musicians. Uh-huh. And and I know with me, like actually like, you know, some of my some people call it flow, which is a term that I really kind of dislike. But I know when I sometimes like when would early on, like even now too, when I play music and I just get in a repetitious groove, you know, it's like boom, an hour's gone by. And just like I wasn't even there. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I'm absolutely convinced. You know, music has been a part of my life for 75 years now. And uh, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the things that drew me to it was that I sensed in music itself, this, uh, um, the vibration that I was talking about earlier that comes from the source. And I think the old timers recognized it when they talked about the music of the spheres, um, the music of coming from the stars, from the heavens itself. And you find it in the Psalms. Uh, they have the, uh, the mountains clap their hands with joy and the, the trees sing. Um, the whole vibration of music. But it, it, I think, well, you know, and, and th- th- when you talk about the repetition, you, you know, remember the old rock song c- coming out of the, the what, 60s or 70s? Give me the beat, boys, and mm-hmm. free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Yep. Shamans, shamans have been using drumming for thousands of years um, to instill that and to open up that very part of the brain that was opened up, I think, when you had your epileptic seizure. Um, and, and, and it can be... It can be wonderful when you just find yourself channeling something that's above you. I, I, my, uh, my first love uh, has always been jazz. And there was a, there was a night uh, I played for, for years with a, uh, a really great uh, quintet. And there was a night when uh, we were all just, you know, I mean, we, I always liked playing with these guys, but uh-huh. this, particular, this particular night, everything was just there. We, we knew what was happening. We, were, we weren't thinking. We were just doing, you know, and we got it all set. And it was, we were given ideas back and forth and rhythms and everything. And it just clicked, the whole thing. And we finished that set. I looked at the tenor sax guy standing next to me, and I said, man, nothing like it. And he just shook his head, and he said, yeah, man. Better, better than sex, except <laughs> what he didn't know was his microphone was still live and his wife was sitting in the front row. <laughs> so I don't know, I don't know if he had an answer for himself that night or not. But it was that it was that kind of a thing when it just, um, you know, where you're just you're you're not thinking. It, right. not, you know, not, not that anybody can just stand up and do it because we all paid our dues. We all spent the time in a practice room practicing the scales and learning and until it just became a part of us. But after it became a part of us, we didn't have to think about it anymore. And uh, I think that's the, that's the reality. If, boy, if we could live our lives that way, just being in that moment and uh, being constantly in that feeling of creativity and of connectedness what a way to live huh it's a great way it's, it's, it's incredible you know like like definitely like, like music music and i think sound vibration you know yeah the, there's a key there i think to so many mysteries of life like, i was even reading i think like a black hole vibrates at the key of 
like B minor. Yes. Is, is actually like one of the yeah. best keys, I think. To, not, not the best key to play on a guitar, but it, well, <laughs> it's just like one of the coolest sounding keys that well, there it's, is. It's, it's funny that you should say that. that because, I mean, I've, I've, heard, I've heard people say that the, uh, the, the whole universe, uh, you know, resonates. And that, that, uh, that not necessarily the key of B minor, but low B. Mm -hmm. uh, comes in over and over and over again. And I have no doubt that there's something going on there. When you stop to think about it, though, I talked about coming out of the source, and I used the word energy. We, there we, the energy comes out. Well, what is energy but vibration? And what is vibration but we experience vibration when we uh, hear different vibrations. We identify those are different pitches. I had an out-of-body experience one time where I was finding myself going, it was very early in my, in my uh, career of out-of-body experiences, I found myself going through this, this tunnel and I, I sensed all these vibrations uh, on, all around me in the mm -hmm. tunnel. And uh, I remember hearing it as music. Me too. And That's what happened. I didn't, I didn't. I, I don't remember saying anything, but my wife was in the next room and she heard me say, it's music, it's music. She heard me actually say those words. And, uh, and I think probably that's one of the things that, that, that music is. Uh, and again, the old timers recognized it. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach once said, no music should be written. It's not written to the glory of God. And I, I really believe that. He could have just said, no music should not be written. It's not written to the glory of source because music is what it's all about. Uh, music is vibration. And when the, when the music stops, the vibration has stopped. And we are living within the music of the spheres. I, uh, I, don't, I don't think we can get enough of it. I really don't. When I meditate, I listen to music. I happen to listen to Hemisync music, which was a technology that was invented uh, by Robert Monroe at, of, uh, of the Monroe Institute, founder uh -huh. of the Monroe Institute. And I, I studied there for uh, a week with uh, William Buhlman, who I think is one of the great, great teachers uh, in the world today uh, when it comes to out-of-body experience. And uh, there we used to use hemisync music, which is a complicated thing to try to describe. But basically what it does is, is, is put the two hemispheres of your brain, left and right, in, in sync, so to speak, so that they are, uh, well, for lack of a better term, it's over, overly simplistic, but so they are vibrating together. Uh -huh. And um, I, I put on the earphones and I listen to this music and I meditate and uh, I just find it... Uh, able to sometimes just not all the time I, I wish I could but most of the time or some of the time I just drift away and get our minds away from all the noise and busyness that this world throws at us it's a oh it's a tough world for that yeah yeah you know I've gone like on um like three days silent retreats for you know mm -hmm. like Buddhist meditation mm -hmm. and, and when I go like people are like how oh, well you know how, how can you not talk I'm like one it's nice not to talk but it's also like for me, in the silence, for some reason, the first thing I hear inside my head is music. Yeah. There's always yeah. just music inside, in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that you said, you know, these three day retreats, because that, that was the key uh, to the vision quest in, uh, in uh, ancient Americans. 
uh, would their young men would go out into the wilderness and they would spend three days on a solitary retreat, three days just living there, staying there, sitting in one place. And at the end of three days, uh, usually their totem animal would come to them. Uh, that happened to me. Uh, my, my totem animal came after three days of partial retreat. And I think that's what we're missing in this life today. Uh, we need to do more of that. We're, we're so busy and so uh, the noise and the stuff that comes at us so much. People say, I'll just go for a walk. Well, a walk is great, but it doesn't do it. It does take, it does take time. And three days seems to be that key that down through thousands of years of history, our ancestors understood that that's what we had to do in order to experience reality on the other side. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely like to do like a month or more if I could, but unfortunately (laughs) right now I don't have that means, but hopefully one day I'll I'll, I'll get to, you know, try. Well, I'll tell you, because I think for three three days I'm able to scratch the surface. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Uh, I I really recommend retirement. Uh, (laughs) it It took me to get to retirement. I wasn't financially ready, but uh, we discovered we were going to make it work. That's all there was to it. I I often tell people if I had discovered what retirement, how good retirement was, uh, I would have done it 30 years ago, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's great to be able to pursue some of our passions. That's what I love about doing the podcast, too, because I learned so much from my guests. Well, um, there's, there's always somebody out there who can teach us, isn't there? It's just a always. wonderful, wonderful thing. Wonderful always. thing. And it's good to be able to share it with other people. Yeah. Yeah, that was the whole idea, the, uh, the shamanic experience, uh, the, which was the basis of out-of-body experiences thousands upon thousands of years ago. Certain gifted people of the tribe were able to, to leave the body and go out into that reality but they didn't just do it for their own trip. You know, they just didn't come back and say, oh, wow, that was cool and tell people about it. They did it for a purpose. Their objective was to bring back something that would bring back healing, that would bring back balance, that bring back a message. It was, it was thought really blasphemous to do a shamanic journey and come back with nothing, um, except a, a big, you know, a fun, a fun trip. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was the whole purpose. It was to go, but then it was to come back. Joseph Campbell called it the hero's journey. Uh, the hero would go forth and have an experience, but the hero always had to come back into reality again, and he would share the results of that experience. That's precisely what I think, as we talked earlier, about what life is, I think. Uh, the idea of coming out here, making the trip, all of us heroes, and then going back with that experience uh, and, and growing the source or evolving the source. I, I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I do too. Um, have you ever like, um, you know, like taking LSD or mushrooms or anything like that? You know, I, I never have. Um, ayahuasca, um, you know, button mushrooms and everything else, I never have. And yet it's a very uh, rich uh, shamanic tradition. Um, I have friends who study with uh, shamans down in Peru who regularly use ayahuasca. Uh, Graham Hancock's book, uh, British journalist, British uh, researcher mm-hmm. uh, on the supernatural, I think is a, a wonderful book talking about his own experiences. And I know that during the 60s, um, 
a lot of my friends were just beginning to, to uh, discover LSD. I missed out on all of that because I was in a practice room learning how to be a trombone player for, <laughs> for all those years. <laughs> so I, I never have, and I, I've never used psychedelics of any kind. I've never, I've never used uh, um, drumming to any great extent, but I have used, like I say, hemisync. Um, mm-hmm. And so I have no... You know, I have no qualms with those that do. I just haven't done it myself. Right. Yeah. I. I mean, I don't do that stuff anymore. Obviously, but when I was a teenager, I did it for fun. Yeah. 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 No. Well, it's 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 all in our brains. Our brains have evolved to deliver reality to us in a certain way, um, and as a result, we're facing. Uh, you know, thousand, two, three, four hundred thousand years of evolutionary uh, work to bring us to the place where, are, place where we are right now. And I think sometimes our brains have to, well, we, we have to open up uh, places of them that are still there. It's just that they've atrophied due to disuse and they can be awakened. Now, I'm saying don't do it lightly. Um, since I started having out-of-body experiences, I have to say that there is one downside, and that's that my dream life is so much more vivid and stays with me so much more. And uh, it can it can be really tough. It can really hurt your sleep, you know. Um, and I think that the only reason for that is that part of the brain that uh, experiences dreams. And I think that dreams are sometimes, uh, uh, they arise from the brain, but I think there are some dreams where we actually are out of body uh, and we leave our bodies in our sleep, or at least uh, we are entangled with the reality outside. But whatever it is, uh, that part of the brain, when it wakes up, ah, boy, it, it, it can be tough. Um, when you when you wake up in the morning and you feel where you have been in your dream is so real that it's even more real than where you are here and uh, uh, it's it it can be disturbing you have to learn how to deal with it so I like to tell people to be very 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 careful proceed slowly uh, which is one of the reasons I haven't used psychedelics at all too because I'm certain certain that they can off they could offer a shortcut. Uh, and probably some people could maybe even benefit from it, but I, I'm, I'm just afraid that um, I would not be uh, spiritually, emotionally ready to handle that kind of a shortcut. I, I'm more of a stick your toe in the water before you jump in kind of guy. <laughs> so what, what is your preferred method for OBE, out-of-body experience? Well, it's, I, I use a, a meditation technique that uh, um, you have to find a time of day when it's really the most important thing you do. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had a lot of people say, I'm going to try to fit in meditation. You can't fit it in. Uh, if it's not the most important thing you do in the day, then it's not your number one priority. It's as simple as that. So I had to find a time and finding the right time can be tricky because if you find a time when you're really tired at the end of the day, you can try to meditate and you can just fall asleep. On the other hand, if you try to find a time when you just wake up, 
like many people do, then you're thinking about the day, you're thinking about all the things that go and all this kind of stuff. So the first thing I had to do was come up with a, a time. I had to make a decision and then I had to stick to it. William Buhlman used to teach us that anybody can have a out-of-body experience, but it has to, number one, be your first priority. And number two, it has to be your priority for 30 days, 30 minutes a day. And he said, if you can find that time and stick to it and have the discipline, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, you will probably have an out-of-body experience. And I've got to say he was right. But if I had stopped at day 28, uh, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, surprisingly, the only time that I could find to meditate was, are you ready for this? Three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I don't know why it was, but I was always waking up either five minutes after mm. three or five minutes before three. The and I found that hour. <laughs> at, at, at that time, my body was rested enough where it was, it was, you know, I could keep fully alert, but it was also, um, I, I was restful enough that I could do it. So I, I made the decision and I stuck to it. And for 30 straight days, uh, I was up at three o'clock in the morning. I would get up out of bed. Uh, I'd go turn on hemi-sync music and, uh, you know, put on the earphones and I would sit in my chair and I would meditate. And you have to develop a system. Um, this particular method that I'm describing now is described in my book, The Quantum Akashic Field, by the way, if anybody's interested. Yes. But you have to develop a system. And for me, it was getting out of bed, going somewhere else, sitting in my chair at 3 o'clock in the morning, putting on the hemi-sync, and trying to meditate. And anybody who has tried to meditate will tell you how difficult it is. Your mind just goes into high drive, hyperdrive. And you're thinking about this and you're thinking about that. And you have to, <laughs> here's where it becomes very Zen-like. You have to try very hard to be calm. And how do you be calm? By not trying. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. You have to focus, focus, and focus some more. And uh, it's not easy. The first week, you're going to want to give up. I guarantee it. Second week, probably the same thing. By the third week, you'll start to have glimmers of once in a while. You will sense something going on, and you don't know what it is. Um, in my case, I was very conscious uh, after a, if I could obtain a few moments of one-point meditation. I was very conscious of it seems like my body was filled with water, and it had all sloshed to one side. And the first time I actually got out of body and was able to actually see my physical body um, reclining in this chair where I meditated, I, my first thought was, man, I made it. And I snapped right back <laughs> into the body <laughs> right away. And then I fell victim to the great trap. The great trap was uh, having done this once, I figured, well, if I could just repeat what I did before, then it'll happen again. And it just doesn't work that way. You have to stay calm. One of the things that I have, that I really recommend to people, right. and I, I sometimes do this and I sometimes don't, I, I should do it all the time and I just don't. And that's keep a journal. Um, you know, I'm a writer. The last thing I want to do is write when I have something like this happen. I don't want to write it down. I write all the time. Uh, but if you keep a journal, all of a sudden you can look back. I, my journals now go back to the year 2012 when my first entries were made. 
And I go back and I read and I read those experiences and then I, I would have forgotten them totally, just like a forgotten dream um, when you wake up. You know, I would have forgotten about them. But keeping a journal, you can see things that, that come to the surface. Uh, themes repeat over and over again. When you're, when you're meditating, you've got to concentrate on, a, on what I call stillness of heart and stillness of mind and stillness of body. And then when you do that, and all of a sudden you realize that you, have, you are getting out of body, that something is happening, then you find yourself coming across things that are guaranteed to really make you sit up and take notice. First time I ever met an entity from another dimension, um, a spirit guide, um, I was so shocked that I just saw it and then boom, I was right back in the body again. And it took me a week before I could get back in that same frame of mind, because I kept on saying, I want to meet, I want to meet the spirit guide again. I want to meet the spirit guide. But then I began to realize that I'm not just talking about this woo woo stuff. It's real. Uh, and it's, it's even there in science, uh, different dimensions, um, different dimensions of reality, different universes. And they're just as interested in meeting us as we are in meeting them. And you can do it. So when you say a method, a haphazard as it is, that's about the closest I can come. <laughs> and what was the, um, the name of the book? Where can my listeners find it? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, the, 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 the book where you have this method written. What was the name of it? Where can my listeners pick it up? Oh, the, uh, it's called The Quantum Akashic Field, A Guide to Out-of-Body Experiences for the Astral Traveler. Uh, first part of the book is all designed to the theory of it, where I try to go into the science uh, of out-of-body experience, because I really do believe it's not this woo-woo mystical stuff. I really believe that uh, the Akashic field and uh, out-of-body experiences are just part of a science that we have not yet figured out. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's real. Uh, so the first part of the book examines that. And then the second part of the book, it gets practical. Uh, and that's teaching my own methods. And I make sure to make that I emphasize over and over again, this is not the way to have an out-of-body experience. It was my way. And if that mm -hmm. helps anybody, that's great. But it's, it's in uh, the quantum Akashic field, a guide to out-of-body experiences for the astral traveler. And you can find it on my website, which is uh, jimwillis.net. Um, and you can find all my books there for that matter. Um, and uh, anybody who wants to contact me through my website, there's a contact page. And I love to talk to people who um, find me through there and, and have conversations. So feel free. Awesome. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> Something mine. Um, I still had to do with the out-of-body experience. Oh, I know what it was. <clears throat> How about occultists um, that, that, that use, like, um, spirits and stuff like that? I mean, that practice goes way back, too. And it's, I don't yeah. know if it's, it's so much shamanic, you know. Um, but, I mean, what is your opinion on that? It, you know, like, I know, like, 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 in the religious world, you know, they would say, oh, black mag you know, magic, it's just the devil's work. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I disagree with that. You know, I don't think anything is the devil's work. It's <laughs> well, yeah. I think we have to come back to the whole idea of duality again. Uh, reality is what we 
bring to it and what we bring back. I, I say in my book over and over again that I've only had one bad out-of-body experience. Um, matter of fact, I never had a bad out-of-body experience at all until I was writing the book called Supernatural Gods. It came out a couple of years ago from Visible Inc. And uh, I made the bold uh, thing that, you know, no problem with supernatural experience because I've never had a bad one. And within a day, I had had a bad out-of-body experience. <laughs> um, I think uh, I have to emphasize, first of all, that I think the primary, the overall um, un undergirding of the entire cosmos is discovered in words like love and compassion uh, and understanding and forgiveness and all those things. I think that's the, the basic of it all. But I also have to say that when we leave the source and when we come through the Higgs field and develop a material uh, perception realm, we develop the capacity for both good and bad. And I think it's possible for us to take that bad with us to a certain point. I think there is a barrier that the universe will not let us cross, but I think we can do that. And the experience that I had, I'm sure that the only evil that I discovered on the other side was evil that I had brought with me. And perhaps in the long run, that wasn't even evil. Perhaps I had to bring it with me so that I could identify it and uh, thereby destroy it. I, I'm not sure. Um, people, people say the same thing, you know, they say, well, you know, you're talking about everybody being good and coming from the source. Do you think Adolf Hitler was good? Well, there's no doubt about it that there are people, many of them, some to a great degree like Adolf Hitler and some to a lesser degree like our next door neighbor, who uh, don't necessarily have the best interest of other people at heart. And they have they their lifetime experience does seem to fall over on that side of the evil the evil side of duality and so i think we have to be careful of that um now i know that there are cults out there that really look into the cult for the purpose of using what is sometimes called black magic or uh evil magic and that kind of thing and those kinds of things i i have to say we have to be very careful of but on the other hand, I, I also think we have to say that this stuff is not all of the devil. Um, there are great angelic beings out there who we need to communicate with. Um, and, and so I think we just can't put everything in a lump sum and say, oh, this is of the devil and this is not, or a cult is evil and all this kind of thing. I don't, I don't think we can do that. Uh, Christianity at the beginning was a Jesus cult. It was a group of Jewish people who believed that Messiah had come. Now, whether they were right or not, um, that's going to be for other people to decide. But it was a Jesus cult, uh, and it turned into Christianity, which <laughs> some people might say is a cult today. I don't know. But at any rate, um, I think we have to be careful with those words. And, and I, I agree with you when you say, let's not just you know jump in and, and make a blanket condemnation. Right. Um, when it comes to good and evil, do, do, do you think that there is an entity um, that is the devil? Oh, wow. Um, there certainly is a strong sense of 
of um, evil because we live in duality in a world of duality, and certainly a lot of uh, entities have uh, taken advantage of that. Um, whether there is one devil, uh, you know, boy, you can get into some real theological discussions about that. Um, our whole concept of the devil has changed so much from where it first arises in the written history. And uh, that takes us all the way back to Samaria, the, um, the Gilgamesh legends and, and, and everything else. And it leads us into the, uh, the theories, the different theories of the Anunnaki. Uh, and the two, um, well, Zechariah Sitchin actually believed that they were entities from outer space. Yeah. <laughs> who, were, who were two, two actually, you know, Enlil and Enki. Mm -hmm. uh, one was the good being, one was the bad being. And we find that uh, in Hopi legends, the, 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 the hero twins, one good, one bad. We find it in uh, many, many different legends about how uh, we find the good and the bad in the past. One is seen as um, uh, the Jesus figure, so to speak, and the other as the devil figure. Um, that whole idea about Jesus going out into the wilderness for 40 days and confronting the devil, um, who was he confronting? Was he confronting an actual entity or was he confronting a... Uh, a, one part of his own dualistic nature, um, the part that in the biblical poetry was thrown out of heaven, so to speak. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid if we start down that line, uh, down, down that route, we'll be here for another couple of days because <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge, huge topic. And I certainly can't, I, I'm, although I have a lot of opinions, I certainly can't say this is the way it is, you know. You know, I've been watching a show on, on Netflix called Lucifer, and mm. and in that show, you know, like like Lucifer, is, you know, he's an angel who originally who rebels against his father and ends mm -hmm. up being sent down to rule hell. Yeah, but 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 the premise of the show is at the end of the day, he's still an angel. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and the part like, the part of the show is like like. He's going through this process now of sort of redeeming himself, you know, yeah. and learning that, that, that he was made for that particular purpose. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it was just all one learning process for him. Yeah. And, and don't we find that within both of us all the time, you know, uh, in one sense, we were kicked out of the source because we made a courageous decision to enter into a world of individuality. But within that individuality, all of a sudden we found duality and there's the good and there's the bad. There's the, the angel and there's the devil. And uh, uh, this has been the subject of mythologies, as I said earlier, going all the way back to the Sumerians and the Gilgamesh legends, the ancient Mesopotamians. We find the same thing in Egypt. Uh, we find the same thing in Peru over and over again. These these stories just keep coming back. So I think people have been trying to grapple with this whole idea for a long, long time. Yes. And this is a perfect segue into your other book, Hidden History, Ancient Aliens and the Suppressed Origins of Civilization. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what the premise of that book is and well, what motivated sure. you to write it? Sure. Uh, 
uh, for many years, I was a, a college professor and I taught uh, world religions. And I noticed something about teaching that I had noticed in my own life for a long time. And that's that how um, stuff that we're taught in the classroom growing up, it can often change. It can often grow. Uh, things that were taught, we discover 10 years later, are just simply not true anymore. Uh, and that's not a problem. I think that's great because I think knowledge has to evolve. I think the problem comes when we are taught certain things and said and, and taught that this is the way it is, period. And then we're tested on that knowledge. We're given a test and, uh, um, and our results of the test determine whether we get a, a good mark or a bad mark. Uh, good students get good marks. Bad students get bad marks. And then all of a sudden we discovered that those things that got us that good mark 10 years later, that's just simply not true anymore. Take as a, a classic example, I was taught ever since grade school that the first Americans were called the Clovis people. And it was a doctrine that was set in stone. And we were told that they, uh, these early people came over from Siberia across the Siberian land bridge, and they came down when the glaciers melted back, and they came down into a virgin continent where no one has ever been, maybe 12,000, 16,000 years ago. And they migrated down to a place near Clovis, Mexico, and there we discovered the first evidence of them, and it was the famous Clovis Point. So they were called the Clovis people, and we were told these were the first Americans, period. That's all there is to it. We were tested on the dates. How long ago? How do we know this? How do we know that? Well, now the Clovis uh, theory, the Clovis, it's called Clovis only. Mm -hmm. The Clovis theory is now in shreds. And there's honest uh, archaeologists and anthropologists who are now looking at the history of America that goes back at least 50,000 years and possibly even now 110,000 years of people being here on this continent. Uh, and we're discovering great, uh, great evidence for this. So when I first started teaching this, this theory in terms of anthropology and, and world religions, uh, I would have to uh, talk to my students, and I love the teaching, and I love the interaction with the students. What I hated was at the end of the semester, uh, I, have a, I give everybody a grade because the school demanded that I did, which meant I had to give a test. And so people would have to take a test, and like everything else growing up uh, in, in my own life, I had to do the same thing to other people that was done to me. Uh, you get a good mark, you're a good student. You get a bad mark, uh, you're a bad student. And I just didn't like it. And so when it came time to write Hidden History, I wanted to write about all of these things that we have been taught that are set in stone. How did the universe begin, the Big Bang? How did life begin? Well, it went from life, grew from non-life in a bubbly uh, pool of scum somewhere. Um, how, did civiliz how did civilization begin? Well, that's easy. It began in Mesop Mesopotamia, it began in Egypt roughly six, seven, eight thousand years ago. Now, well, since then, all of those theories are now being questioned. So I wanted to write Hidden History because I wanted to write the predominant theory of how all these things happen. But then I wanted to expand to look at the other theories that uh, may not have uh, as much academic credential, but they're still being uh, argued by reputable scientists. 
there is a byproduct of this, though. I discovered some just heart-rending stories. Uh, for instance, take uh, Hugh Everett. Hugh Everett was one of the great physicists who ever lived. He, he gave us what we now call the multiverse. He was the first yeah. to, to talk about this whole thing. And yet, he was literally blackballed from physics. He couldn't get a job teaching. He couldn't get a job experimenting. He couldn't get a job writing. He had to take a, a job with the federal government. And it may be a good thing that he did because it was his leading, it was his teaching that really led us to the whole idea of mutual assured destruction, which may have saved the world during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Hugh Everett died a broken man, thinking that his ideas were just crazy and being told that there was nothing. And now, virtually every physicist out there, when they talk about Hugh Everett, now that it's too late because he's dead, they speak of them in these reverent tones. And I could talk about so many others. Uh, Warren Moorhead, for instance, and the red paint people theory that he had. Mm -hmm. So many of these people died thinking that they were wrong, thinking that their ideas were, were discredited, and now all of a sudden they're accepted. So it isn't the idea of our knowledge growing that bothers me. That, I think, is wonderful. Knowledge has to evolve. I think the problem is the way we teach it and the way we tell people, this is the way it is, period. And that's it. Um, you can get in all kinds of problems. Uh, in, in Egypt, when you study the, the, uh, the pyramids, you go over there right now and Egyptologists will tell you exactly when the pyramids were built. They'll tell you exactly how the pyramids were built. They said, there are no mysteries. We have all of the answers. Well, when I was in Egypt going through the pyramids for the first time, uh, our, our guide was taking us back down this long tunnel underneath the pyramids, and I noticed there were these electric wires going alongside of the path, and their purpose was to, uh, to uh, light, to provide power for the lights mm -hmm. that were making it possible for us to go underneath the pyramid. So I found myself saying, well, I wonder how they worked in here in the pitch dark before there was electricity. So I looked up at the, the roof of this tunnel we were in, and I looked for signs of soot or smoke or something. You know, maybe they had torches. There wasn't any. And so I said to the guide, who was so self-centered, so self-assured all day long, I said to him, I was walking right in front of me. I said, uh, how did they see to work back here before electricity? And he actually turned away from me, walked away and mumbled something like, oh, they must have had some kind of a light source. And that's all he said. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I couldn't believe it. For two days, he had been telling us all of the answers and everything else. And here is a basic, basic question that he couldn't answer. And if I hadn't pushed him on it, he never would have even brought it up. And I find that that is so often the case in academia. Uh, believe me, I am not trying to put down academics in terms of their research and their work and, and opening up new things. But I, I do put down academia when it insists it's my way or the highway and this is the way it happened because truth is we just don't know these things. That's what Hidden History, my book, is all about. How far back do you think humans existed? I, mean, I think that's a big question right now. Oh. We keep finding stuff like... like you know, almost like 250,000 years yeah, back. Yeah, I, like, 
<laughs> I, I know. Uh, if, if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, everybody knows humans are, uh, evolved 200,000 years ago. Before that, there was Neanderthal. We didn't even know about Denisovans back then. We certainly didn't know about uh, the, 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 the two new species that are down in New Zealand and, and, uh, and around that area. We didn't know any of that stuff. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, well, here's the evidence. Now human beings are 300,000 years old. Uh, within the last couple of weeks, there's evidence percolating out that I'm just following with all kinds of bated breath that said, oh, maybe now we have to start looking four or 500,000 years ago. So if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, humans evolved 200,000 years ago. Now, when I look at human species, maybe not species just like Homo sapien. But I'm thinking we have to not, now start talking, not in terms of thousands of years, but perhaps in terms of millions of years. And on good days, perhaps even billions of years. I think we, consciousness has had a material existence and sentience as, and, and a material existence that can contemplate itself. They may not have looked like Homo sapiens. They may not have looked, but I think we can go way, way back, a lot farther than anybody ever expected before. I agree. Um, what is your slant on Darwinisms? You know, like, that's another thing too. Over, I'll say, over the last ten or fifteen years, a lot of holes have been poked in it with the finding of like these Hobbit people. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the elongated skulls that have the different cracks at the top so we know they yeah, you know yeah. purposely elongated um well so yeah even even 200 you know 200 years ago uh, 150 years ago for that matter well for that matter right up through the time of the civil war we made a, a science and religion made a huge mistake and they put us into an either or position either darwinism or creationism one or the other and all I can say is maybe when the whole final theory is figured out, maybe there's room for both. Um, maybe there is evolution within species. I think we have to admit that there is because uh, the, the little dog that we have running around at our feet doesn't look anything like a wolf, but we know that way back when she was, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we evolve. On the other hand, is Darwinism sufficient? to explain life and in, in all of its complexity. I just don't think so. So I don't think it's a matter of, again, either or. I think we have to say we have to have room for both. The Buddha would say, accept both and go to that, through the middle ground to that place that embraces them both. Yes, I, I agree. Um, if the our species have been around for so long. Do you think, do you, do you believe that in, in like uh, the, the idea of aliens, you know, doing genetic modifications to create us? I'm not going to close my mind to anything, frankly, Jerry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just really not. Um, when it comes to the whole idea of aliens, and I talk about this in two or three books now, um, I think we have to get rid of, again, that whole question of either and or. Uh, either there are aliens from off our planet or there are not. And then we say, well, if there are aliens and if they have been ancient aliens in our past, 
either they come from this cosmos or they come from other dimensions. Uh-huh, or both. And, and I just say, once again, yeah, both. I really do think. Um, I know that there's a lot of physics uh, types that are going to be very distraught at the idea of nuts and bolts flying saucers, uh, conquering the laws of physics to travel the immense distances that we have to travel. And so I know they're going to have a hard time believing in real solid nuts and bolts uh, you know, flying saucers. On the other hand, uh, what was the very first thing we did that as soon as we could break the bonds of earth, what, what did we do? We set off the Voyager and what was in the Voyager? It was Carl Sagan's famous golden record that said, this is who we are. Here we are. Hi. Now, (laughs) if we did that, I can't imagine that, uh, conscious sentient life couldn't exist on other planets somewhere else in the universe, perhaps billions of years ago, who did the very same thing we did. Um, and also, I have to face the fact that there is just so much circumstantial evidence and, 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 and people taking pictures. And even now, I'm following this in the New York Times. I love it with the Pentagon releasing this information about uh, um, a, uh, alien uh, materials and metals that were not made on this planet. Well, where did they come from? And so I have to say that these immense distances that we say are physically impossible to travel, I think we have to add one word to that sentence. There are physical uh, uh, tr- uh, distances that we are not able to follow or pass through yet. Uh, I think the time will come when we may discover that we are just uh, able, uh, capable of doing all things. Of course, I'm a Trekkie, so I believe in warp speed, you know, and mm-hmm. else. But on the other hand, besides the idea of uh, ancient aliens who are of this cosmos, and I think we have to say, yeah, but we also, I think, have to uh, experience this whole idea of other dimensional entities. I know they're there because in out-of-body experiences, I've seen them. And so I have to believe that given the kind of evidence that not only I can, I have seen with my own two metaphorical eyes and out-of-body experience, but with all of the oral history that has come down through us about meeting these other entities, I have to believe that um, aliens could also come from dimensions that are parallel to us. And if we can learn to do out-of-body experiences and see them, then obviously they can do out-of-body experiences and see us. Exactly. (laughs) I've been saying that, you know, people like, like like us, you know, maybe we can't, maybe they can't travel here in a complete physical form, but maybe they can astral travel here. Well, you know, it, it's a crazy physical form. It's, it's the craziest thing. Of, of all the people who can hear us talking like this and say, no, it can't be, uh, probably in, in the, a good number of them are going to be out of the Christian tradition, which are going to say, we just don't believe in entities stepping out of another dimension into our own. I, that's, that's crazy. And yet at Christmas time, they will stand up and sing, angels we have seen on high, or uh, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And they will tell the story of the angel Gabriel stepping right out of another dimension and speaking to Mary or speaking to Daniel in the Old Testament or speaking to Muhammad in the cave where he was meditating. 
what is this except entities coming from another dimension with a message for us? So right again, it's right there in the great religions of the world yeah. that this has happened in the past yeah. and, and uh, is happening probably right now. Yeah, and now we have a little bit of quantum physics to even back some of these absolutely things up and give them a scientific basis. Yeah, yep, absolutely. I, I, I really think that uh, dimensional travel and entities from another dimension uh, is not just a metaphysical or supernatural idea. I think it's, as I said earlier, science that we haven't yet figured out. Um, I think it was uh, Herbert Clark, perhaps, who said that uh, any technology that is sufficiently advanced is going to appear like magic to us. And I think that's probably what we're facing. We just don't understand it yet. That doesn't mean it's not happening because there's too much evidence that it is happening. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, re I guess it was a couple months ago, I re interviewed somebody from uh, the Golden Dawn. Ah. And, um, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about the history of the occult is, I mean, it started out <laughs> as writing. <laughs> you yeah. know? Somebody writes down something on a piece of paper, some guy takes it to somebody else and knows what it means. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and that was considered like magic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there have been, there have just been too many, too many experiences of this. Uh, when we talk about, in, when, when the army um, was uh, experimenting with this stuff and when uh, Skip Atwood actually went to, Monroe Institute, where he met Robert Monroe, um, he was actually doing remote viewing experiments for the Army. And they found some of their people uh, who were able to uh, do remote viewing and actually spy on the, the position of Russian submarines and all this kind of thing. Now, what it would have happened if when he spotted these Russian submarines in the, in the uh, process of ethereal travel, uh, then what would have happened had there been someone on the submarine who was equally gifted and could have seen him? Yes. And here we have two entities meeting each other in a plane that we do not yet understand. I think it's entirely possible. And, and I think it's practical. I, I, I don't think we just need to look at this stuff as this, oh, woo-woo mystic stuff that's entertaining. I, I got a call one night, middle of the night, three, four o'clock in the morning from a nurse in the hospital who, who told me a, a good friend of yours is, is dying in the hospital. He's not expected to end the, uh, to get through the night and uh, he needs to talk to you. He's been asking for you. Can you come by any chance? And I said, sure, of course. So I got up out of bed, got my clothes on, got my car, drove down to the hospital. And uh, sure enough, here was my friend who was in the hospital bed. He was quite a bit older than me. I was probably 15, 20 years younger at the time. He was quite a bit older than me, but he was facing what could be his last night in, on, on earth. Now, this man had led an exemplary life. He had a doctorate or two. Uh, he had started a university. He was a founder of a university. He was a pillar of the community. He was a pillar of our church, a deacon of our church, greatest guy in the world, amassed a small fortune along the way that he used to help other people. Just, you couldn't imagine a better life. And as I stood holding his hand, I was close enough to him where I realized that uh, he didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have to beat around the bush with him. And so I just said to him, are you ready to go? He started to cry. And he said, Jim, I've done a lot of stuff in my life. The one thing I didn't do was prepare for this 
moment. He wasn't ready to die. Now, we were lucky. He made it through that night. He made it through 10 more. And I spent part of the next 10 days, each part of, uh, part of every day over the next 10 mm -hmm. days with him. All I can think of is how many people do I know in this life who are not ready to die, who are not ready to face these big questions? They put them off because they seem, oh, it's too difficult to talk about these things. Oh, it's too difficult to think about these things. Oh, these things are beyond me. What kind of practical sense would it take if we, every single one of us, could begin to realize what's really important and to concentrate on that stuff rather than the stuff that fills our days. So I think what we've been talking about for the last, what, hour and a half now, um, I think is of immense practical importance, not just um, spiritual, religious, or even metaphysical importance, and certainly not just entertainment. Uh, it may be the answer of studying this kind of stuff could be the path that's going to take us to the promised land uh, away from all of this stuff that we've created that's destroying the world around us and destroying our countries and destroying our physical lives and everything else. To me, it's immensely practical, and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to, to talk about these things with someone such as yourself. Thank you. I'm glad to have you because I, I feel um, if, if people could let go of the fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything would be possible for the, for, for the human species. If we yes. just let go of that one thing. And, and it is, it's mostly the fear of death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and death is just something not to be feared. Like, I don't mean to be morbid, but you know, like, um, like first time I, uh, my, my mom passed away, I guess it was about five years ago. And, and I didn't know what to expect. And I was afraid, you know. And when she was dying, like, I, I just sat with her and I was, I was holding her hand. And she just stopped breathing. And honestly, it was like this super calm. Yeah. Um, it, 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 was just, it wasn't traumatizing. You know what I mean? It was the complete mm -hmm. opposite. There was so much peace. Yeah. 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 You know. I think that's I, I, I think that's what we all have to look forward to, and it's a shame that we can't carry that peace with us through all of the human manufactured traumas and dramas that we create around ourselves. Uh, oh, it's a it's a shame. It really is. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, I can say you know you talked about not wanting to be morbid. I, I'm, I'm I don't say this with any more, you know, morbid feelings at all in myself, <laughs> but I, I kind of look forward to it. I really do. I've been to the other side. I've seen it. I know what it's the, what what it's like, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I really am. There there comes a time when we realize we've done what we need to get done, and we just want to go home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've done a lot of long distance biking. I, gone cross country a couple of times and on a, on a bicycle and uh, up and down north and south and east and west both. I've done a lot of uh, hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And I can always say that a day or two before I know the trip is going to wind up, I always just want to say, boy, 
I wish it was over. You know, I know I've got another day or two to go. It's been great. I wouldn't have wanted to miss it, but I'm ready. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's kind of the way I'm feeling about life right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, 70, at 75 years old, you look back at what you've done and you realize you can still have a couple of good years left and that's fine. But when you know what's out there and you know the trip, you know the journey is there and it's been worth it, uh, there's a part of you that just says, wow, I want to go home. It's time. Yep. So. But, but, I mean, you definitely – you know, you're, you're carrying a very important message to people. You know, I mean, like anybody who reads your books or hears this podcast, you know, it, it, it could change their lives. You know, it could take away that fear. And I think you take away one person's fear and people see that change of one person, hopefully that can be just as contagious as like the COVID virus. You know what I mean? <laughs> thank, yeah. Thank, thank you, Gary. I, I, I really do appreciate that. It's the, the good thing about living out in the woods is that we don't see anybody for days on end. Sometimes the bad thing about living out in the woods is that we don't see anybody for days on end. Sometimes <laughs> you can feel, you can start to feel sometimes that your life just hasn't been worthwhile, you know, and you just haven't accomplished anything. And then when you hear something like that, it's a reminder that uh, uh, you, ne you never know. You just have to, you know, that's why I have to take it one day at a time and just use the days, do what, what's there and uh, uh, look forward to it. Yeah. So, oh, but thank really you. This, cool. has been, uh, this has been great. I really do appreciate this, Gary. I do too. I, I really love this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great for me too. And hoping to do it again sometime. Absolutely. And one more time, just uh, tell my listeners where they can find you. Sure. Uh, the website probably is a good place to start as any. It's uh, www.jimwillis.net. Uh, I also have a Facebook um, page at jimwillis.author. Uh, and then there is a YouTube channel um, that has uh, a lot of different things that we've done right now. My, my, my daughter handles all the... Uh, the tech part of this and my scheduling and everything else. And she and I are working on a series of uh, videos right now uh, on uh, dowsing for the beginner, dowsing for earth energy. And uh, some of those are going to be appearing on the YouTube video along with some of the other talks that I've done in the past at various places. And um, once again, if you find me on the website, go to the contact page, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Yes, definitely. And I'll definitely also, uh, in the notes of this podcast, I will post the links oh, uh, for my listeners wonderful. so they can just click on the links if they're accessing you, you know, through sure. the internet. Sure. Jan, Jan can set you up with all of those. And uh, um, she's the one that, that keeps me on the straight and narrow because to me, a computer is just a big typewriter. <laughs> so <laughs> I, really, I really have to thank her for, for keeping me in, in, uh, in tune with all the rest of that stuff. Well, we got you on Zoom. Well, there you go. <laughs> oh, also, just, just for the fun of it, uh, we mentioned Hidden Histories. If any of your uh, listeners are, are interested, uh, next September, we're leading a, uh, a trek, a tour to Turkey and Gobekli Tepe. Uh, we're going to visit where civilization began, and we're going to meet at Istanbul, I'm doing this in conjunction with uh, Dr. Mickey Pistorius, who is with Ancient Origins. 
Uh, she's my editor there, and she and I will be leading this trip. And if anybody is interested in Gobekli Tepe or Istanbul or the birthplace of Abraham or any of those old um, places, they're all there. It's advertised on the website. And I invite you to go to the Ancient Origins website and uh, check out the tour. It's going to be a fascinating tour over there. We're going to do a little dowsing and uh, talking in depth about a lot of the things that you and I have talked about today. So I hope some of your listeners can join us. That's that's like a dream come true type of trip there. (laughs) Well, hope we can can, uh, have a good good group. We're looking forward to it. We really, we were scheduled to go in just a couple of weeks this September, but obviously the way things are in the world right now, um, it just didn't work out. So we had to put it off for a year. So it'll be next September, plenty of time to plan. That is awesome. All right. Well, thank you for being on my show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Like I said, I totally love talking to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll talk again, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. I'm telling be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everything imaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.